0: Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Can we be more secure in a world where we trust no one? The idea behind Zero Trust is just that. And in this week's special report, we ask whether Zero Trust could be the future for information security. For years, we've based information security on the perimeter and we've had to build ever-higher walls as a result. That no longer works. At some point, the wall will be breached. And when a breach happens, other measures will be needed to deal with the threat. Zero Trust is one way to do this. It has the potential to be both more secure and more resilient than perimeter-based security. But moving to Zero Trust is a radical step it means investment in technology, changes in process and a changing culture. So what exactly is Zero Trust and how does it work? According to Elliot Rose, Cybersecurity Lead at PA Consulting, we have to rewrite the rulebook. The starting principle is that everything is untrusted. The network, the device
1: and the user. So zero trust really is is a concept of of not trusting anything as the name indicates in terms of the environment. So we, we've had historically the ability for people to log on to your company's systems through uh, you know a single sign-on and then have access to everything, in um, particular that it relates to their work. Uh, zero trust really comes at it from the other way, which says actually, um, we're going to tr- not trust you. <laughs> uh, we'll only trust you each time you interact with a piece of data or system you want to actually have access to. Um, so, so it's really making sure that every time there's an interaction in terms of looking up data or accessing data or information, we're authenticating and making sure that that person is who they say they are uh, and they have the right credentials to access and use that information.
0: But Zero Trust isn't an entirely new concept. Ian Pratt is Global Head of Security at HP Personal Systems. He says we can trace the concept back to the idea that perimeter security is no longer enough. And that idea has been around for more than a decade.
2: For me, it really goes back to um, the work of the Jericho Forum in 2004 and the, the whole role they played in trying to define deperimeterization this notion that uh, it was no longer sufficient to have a concept of an enterprise network and trying to keep all of the the bad things outside of that but that you needed to move to a, a far more fine-grained model where you um, have various sort of tenants about uh, needing to authenticate devices and users rather than just you know trusting them based on where they happen to be on the network and i think those um, approaches of uh, of authenticating device and use, devices and users having least privileged access to resource and fine-grained robust isolation those are that's really how I see zero trust. and obviously from a uh, a networking point of view that has has really come to the fore in the last year with um, enterprises having to sort of accelerate a, a, a more of a move towards zero trust architectures with everybody moving to work from home and you know whereas perhaps before organizations might have um, you know had a smaller number of users working from home they might have forced them all to to vpn back into the corporate network you know that's as soon as you start having everyone working from home for most organizations that was just impractical and so looking at sort of more fine-grained ways of uh of Enabling access to those enterprise resources, enterprises had to, to look at how to do that, and you know that that whole shift, um, you know, if it's been done well, can actually lead to a, a better security posture. Zero
0: trust then can improve security, but it's more nuanced than not trusting anything. It's about how you establish trust, as Eben Rodriguez, a security analyst with GigaOM, explains.
3: Uh, typically, zero-trust networks require a uh, trusted device. So uh, that could be your phone or your laptop that is configured with a number of security controls built in. So, for example, um, if you're using the Chrome web browser, there will be plugins uh, or the technologies built in to check that all of the certificates, SSL certificates for all the websites you're going to are actually valid. Many times, if you are using your own personal device, uh, different ISPs or services might not actually check that the SSL certificates for the websites you're going to are valid. There's a certificate revocation list that needs to be verified prior to checking the website. And uh, those lists are very large and can be time consuming, slowing down your access to the website. So. Some companies or people will just disable it or maybe check it after you connect. Well, a Zero Trust device that's been configured properly will have an updated cached list of these certificate revocation lists so that uh, you can connect quickly and trust that the certificate you're going to is valid. So that's one example. Another check that a a browser might do on a Zero Trust device is um, that the password you're using haven't been compromised. So a lot of these uh, tools now have built-in password checkers and they'll pop up and warn you if a password you're using to log in somewhere uh, has been used in a compromise somewhere else. Uh, So that's a nice feature to have, but it's not forced by default. So we want to turn that on. Uh, Make sure browsers are up to date, make sure your antivirus is running properly. All these types of things can be enforced on a trusted device used in a zero trust network.
0: So Zero Trust taps into resources to see if a device or account has been compromised. Those checks take place in the background, so the user experience, perhaps when using a web-based application, is smoother as well as more secure. But we're also dealing with a more fluid threat situation. Risk levels are not static, says Nico Fishback, Chief Technology Officer at Forcepoint. And security needs to follow suit.
4: You do access based on... The combination of user data and risk, so it's never static. It, it evolves over time. You don't just give you know everybody access to everything, which is the old you know VPN model. If you look back at you know what people did early in the year when they uh, when they faced the the first lockdowns and had to uh, to become kind of you know IT heroes of the weekend by scaling VPNs and providing everybody laptop and remote access. The problem is you know. That completely changed the attack surface because they had to be very kind of lax in you know those accesses to make sure everybody can continue to work and the company can continue to operate, and that's why you know zero trust right now is so much top of mind also at you know, C level at board level, because the, the fine grained approach you know is what people need now, and also applying risk and continuous risk assessment if you will to the user and the data and that connection you know is critical and it's at the same time a language the the board and the CEO understands, you know, managing risk for business outcomes. There's no doubt
0: that over the last year, companies have had to move quickly towards remote working. And organisations that have already invested in Zero Trust have had a head start. But conventional remote working security tools and VPNs are themselves under threat, argue PA Consulting's Rose and HP's Pratt.
1: So, so the reason, I mean, the main reason is obviously the situation we find ourselves in. So, we're all of us largely working from home or remotely working. Um, the infrastructure that organisations provided historically to enable remote access with through VPNs, um, obviously that infrastructure was sized and scaled to perhaps cover about, you know, typically 10% of an organisation's population. Um, and, of course, with us all working at home, obviously, that's increased the loading on, on so the, the VPN-type network. And also, the VPN itself represents an additional threat vector which hackers can attack. Um, so, um, from both an efficiency point of view and also from a security point of view, the historic way of remote working is, is now under threat, literally. Uh, and so, you know, we're looking at models now which in, encourage zero trust, which, are, which provides direct access to apps, but through, through a, a system or a, a way of brokering that to make sure that the person is who they say they are and can access that particular application to do their job.
2: Certainly. I mean, if you think back before everybody was working from home, even just within the, the corporate network environments, if you had a model where um, your access to resources was allowed if you were inside the corporate network, but not if you were outside... You know, even within that model, you had a an issue that if a endpoint became compromised, you know, perhaps a, a user clicked on something, resulting in that machine becoming compromised. There's a you know, remote access toolkit running on that machine. At that point, it becomes very easy for an attacker to move laterally around the network to get access to. Other more valuable resources than just what happens to be on that endpoint.
0: Limits in our ability to protect endpoints or to secure the perimeter were already forcing CISOs to look for different approaches, even before the growth in remote working.
2: That has sort of you know, led to the understanding that we need to start um, having sort of more fine grained isolation, controlling what a given machine or a given user can access. And when you start moving that outside of the uh, of the corporate network, and obviously we're in a situation now where over the last few years, more and more of the the valuable information that companies have ends up being outside of the corporate network anyway. It might be in various SaaS applications up in the cloud, and you clearly want to provide you know this, the same kind of protection around those data. Make sure that make make sure that you're doing sort of strong authentication. Um, of users, perhaps even controlling what device they're able to access it from so that uh, you know, just the leak of, uh, of credentials isn't going to enable somebody else to then log into that application from a, from a different device. So it's really narrowing down the scope of, of, of how given resources can be, uh, can be accessed so that you can actually know something about what's accessing them, ideally knowing the, the user Um, perhaps even knowing which device they're accessing it from. And then there's the potential to even take it to a a finer granularity where you're not just worrying about the the device, because the device, of course, may have been compromised, but perhaps if you can actually extend that to the security posture of the individual application and the integrity of that application, which is then accessing through to that resource. And I think that's the, the sort of the next step in this journey of Extending zero trust architecture into the endpoint itself so that, you know, compromise of a a device doesn't necessarily mean that you've lost control of, uh, of all of the applications and data that happen to reside on that device or the credentials that exist on that device.
0: And as Pratt notes, limits in our ability to protect endpoints or to secure the perimeter were already forcing CISOs to look for different approaches, even before the growth in remote working. Rose points to incidents, including the Target breach in the U.S., in support of the case for zero
1: trust. We, uh, we've seen this um, in terms of you know, threats having lateral movement. So an attacker will go for one part of an organisation, and they'll be able to move based on accessing that. There may be weak credentials around a particular application. I think a Target was around a particular infrastructure that was particularly purely protected. They've been able to get into that part of the organisation, and then because of the permissions, being able to move to another part of the organisation, and uh, You know, I often use the analogy of the coconut, so, uh, you know, we often have a hard perimeter, Um, But often organizations, when you've got into that premise or got breached it, you can go particularly absolutely anywhere. And so that is one of the reasons why I think in the current environments, with the threat of of getting past the initial VPN security um, access, that once you're in, you can get access to absolutely anything. So it's a real threat to organizations that we've never had to think about it in this particular way, again, with the situation we find ourselves in, but particularly the way we've architected our, our security and systems in the past. I also think there's there's something about thinking about the wider ecosystem around this. And another example we've had was a, a particular client, uh, the CFO, that had, uh, had used social media quite a lot, um, hadn't necessarily locked it down in the right way, um, had used credentials on social media which were similar or the same that allowed the attackers an edge to get to get past bypass their security into the system. Once they got into the system, they were able then to access a lot of information and also to exfiltrate information from that CFO's inbox, which went unnoticed for quite some time. So I think there's there's a number of angles on this in terms of the environment we find ourselves in, but equally as we, historically we've architected systems are no longer fit for purpose in terms of the, the current climate we find ourselves in.
0: But how should organisations start their move to this technology? This could be with high value applications or by protecting their most sensitive data.
2: Well, that's... A sort of a common um, you know, way you'd wish to approach this problem of identifying the things you care most about and putting particular um, you know, security measures around them. For the things you care most about, you're probably as, a, as you're prepared to um, you know, enforce a higher level of, uh, of friction on users. Perhaps you know the need to authenticate using a second factor or whatever it is to you want to put in place to. Help improve the security of those applications, and that's that's a sort of a very common approach, which and sensible approach that organisations take to security. Um, and so, actually enabling you to do that um, and be able to ensure the the integrity and confidentiality of that confidentiality of that application, even perhaps if the the operating system of the the endpoint that the user is using has been compromised, you know that that's a very powerful. Uh, you know, concept. If you can, uh, if you can implement that, but of course you want to try and and stop their endpoint from getting compromised in the first place. So being able to use virtual machines to contain the risky activities that the uh, the user is performing as well, um, have them coming in and out of existence as they perform different tasks on their machine, opening documents and you know clicking on links, etc. You know, it's that's again also useful. So you you really ideally want to be able to to do both things, containing the risky things and protecting the things that you care most about.
0: These improvements will though come at a cost, in complexity and potentially in more friction in business processes. For GigaOms Rodriguez, making zero trust work means hiding most of that complexity from the end users.
3: All of this sounds very complicated and it really is. Uh, It's quite amazing that this all works together, but, There is a pattern that IT departments can follow that will allow them to set up all this complicated technology behind the scenes so that when you get your laptop as a new hire and you're connecting to a zero trust enabled network, it actually looks very easy. You open up your device, you put in your name and email address, maybe they've given you a temporary password to get you started. You create a new password, which doesn't actually need to be that complicated. It could be a phrase, um, but in these new zero trust networks, the password is almost less important than what happens next. Once you've authenticated to the network for the initial uh, session, uh, there will be some validation questions. You know, those things like uh, what's your favorite vacation spot or your favorite food and that type of thing. And we also will uh, configure a secondary device. It could be a hard token that's a USB or Bluetooth dongle that you plug into your laptop, or it could be a secondary authentication factor on your phone. Or in many cases, you wanna have a few of these devices so there's a backup in case your phone battery is dead or you misplaced it, you have a backup authentication that you can use in addition to the password. It's just like having your credit card your debit card with your ATM machine and a PIN, uh, but actually having multiple PINs. So something you have and something you know.
0: And the greatest risk PA Consulting's Rose warns is in failing to work with the business.
3: You know, we've worked with clients,
1: for example, in quite high secure environments. And this is something they've, they've already addressed and, and put in place. Um, and one of the things there, it's really important to do is to work with the business to understand how they how this model will work and operate. And so, you know, understanding that actually this person you know, should, needs to know there might be a certain piece of information that exists in a particular location, but can't access it, but can understand how they can go about accessing it or know the person owns that piece of information is really important. So don't underestimate from a CISO point of view, you really need to engage with the business in terms of understanding the operating model, especially if you're transforming your business and going digital, you need to think carefully about how that, that will operate in reality. Um, because as I say, if, if you don't get that right, um, it does cause not just friction; it will stop your business <laughs> fundamentally. At
0: HP, Ian Pratt suggests taking a step-by-step approach.
2: With all of these things, it's a uh, you know it, it's a journey. Um, certainly, you can just deploy software on the endpoints. Um, and, you know, in fact, HP PCs ship with uh, you know with software on the image to do this. But uh, certainly, for containing the risky things. That's something which is uh, you know, it was really quite easy and straightforward to uh, uh, to do um, from a a setup point of view. A typical um, you know out of the box configuration would be to contain things like if you click on a click to open a, an attachment that comes in via email, you would then isolate that within a a virtual machine. And what the sort of out of the box configuration has is, is it identifies the the activities which are the the highest risk, and if you look at the statistics, you know if you look at, uh, you know, endpoints are very much targeted. Um, you know, in, in in enterprise, you know, attacks on enterprises. Something like over seventy percent of a uh, of enterprise breaches start with an endpoint becoming compromised, with a a user, you know going about their, uh, their business, clicking on a link, opening an email attachment, you know these are the, the high risk activities. Um, certainly right now, the most common kind of attack we see is actually you know, Word documents coming in via email. That's about the, the most dangerous thing you can do on a PC is to, to, to open a Word document you've received via email. Um, obviously, other um, you know, file types coming in via email are also high risk. We see you know, downloads from the uh, from websites as being the next highest category, we're beginning to see more use of um, files being sent via um, chat programs um, as again as a used as a way that's used to deliver malware to machines. And of course, you've always got the risk of a, of a user plugging in a USB memory stick you know, with a, with a malicious file on it. But those are by far the most common ways that, uh, that endpoints get compromised. You know, the 99.9 uh, 9, if not 99% ways, it's, it's that that's, uh, those vectors which are, uh, uh, t- are used to compromise devices. And so if we can arrange that any interactions via those vectors are taking place in these isolated virtual machines, then that's something we can do with an out of the box configuration we can actually greatly reduce the the attack surface um, of that PC. We can make it much less likely that it's going to get compromised as a, as a result of a user clicking on something. And so that side of things is pretty easy to, uh, to, to do.
0: GigaOms Rodriguez, though, argues that the upfront costs of zero trust will pay for themselves.
3: What's the ROI of a zero trust network? There is some uh, additional cost involved in getting the tools set up properly, maybe hiring a consulting team to come in and help jumpstart your IT staff to get everything set up. But then over the long run, you're gonna have um, more user productivity from uh, less password resets and less hassle getting logged in. You don't have to worry about the VPN dropping and reconnecting, things like this, losing data, lost files, whatever could go wrong at at your home network or you're traveling and and, um, connecting from client sites or coffee shops. You also save money uh, with the ongoing support costs in your IT department because uh, every investment you do up front to simplify and automate the onboarding process means um, that you have more time to make things more secure on an ongoing basis and you're not dealing with a, a lot of end user problems. And
0: P.A.'s Rose says that the move to the cloud and the increasing need to comply with regulations is strengthening the arguments for this type of security
1: there's increasing use of tools and techniques around this and, and often in terms of moving to cloud there are tool sets there that you can use fairly fairly cost effectively from a cloud perspective for example uh, and that's why again I think just the lift and shift is a mistake and I think the organizations need to look at what tools they can employ there um, you know undoubtedly there's a legacy there in terms of, of you know integrating with and again clients need to look at the business case around that and also look at some of the greater regulations we're facing now so with things like GDPR and the US privacy rules around this you know there're greater fines if you get that wrong if you leak data you're not shown to put in place the right measures so there is an investment required but it has to be on you know clearly in that business case context um, and as i say in terms of people's mindset and approach as well there, it is a people based approach as well which is you know educating um, and you know, making them think think before they click effectively in terms of what they're doing
0: how, though, can CISOs convince their boards to invest?
1: Again, we've seen lots of examples where people have been breached and, and there's lots of concern, well, how on earth did this happen? Why didn't we spot it? And, and, you know, again, we do a lot of work with boards in terms of training and education around this. Uh, we also do work with non-executive directors. The NEDs are, you know, should be the conscience of the board. So, again, we do a lot of work because we see a lot of demand around that, but NEDs wanting to understand more about the cyber risk of it. Um, And there's a a couple of angles, I guess, on it as well Is obviously regulation, the big stick is out there now and and people do get concerned about big fines and of course the board will around that. So it's, it's really important to understand, explain to the board in terms of what the risks are in terms of that, the potential fines and reputational damage will follow around this. We're also seeing an increasing attention um, from from insurers as well. So many organisations now are purchasing cyber insurance. It's becoming more popular, more talked about. Um, And the cyber insurers themselves are pushing, you know, in terms of their premiums, in terms of understanding um, what's what's being put in place. Um, So I think we'll see also a demand or a driver on that. And, of course, the board, you know, from a financial point of view, will, will be quite interested in terms of, you know, what insurance levels covers do we have, what do those premiums cover? Um, and of course, I think we may see some examples of where insurers will potentially start to you know, question organisations where they haven't put the right controls in place. And certainly we're seeing that from a regulatory point of view. If you have a, a breach on the GDPR now, the regulators will look closely, well, what actually controls did you put in place? And if you haven't put the right controls in place, then significant fines and, and bad publicity around that will follow. So, it is a difficult concept, historically, but I think there are a number of the factors, as I've described, that are making the board this becoming much more of a mainstream board level issue for, for organisations.
0: At Forcepoint, CTO Fishback believes that much will depend on the board's attitude to risk.
4: Well, what we've seen, I mean, first of all, I think it depends how kind of security or risk savvy your, your board is. And we've seen that change a lot. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of C-level, I've been talking to quite a few board members you know, recently and clearly there, there's an appetite to understand what's happening from an IT security and from a data protection point of view inside the organization. It's not just kind of the, uh, you know, the existing audit function, you know, from a regulatory compliance point of view that, that people look at now. So they bring in also board members that understand, you know, this, this space, so IT security, data protection. And the conversation should really be, how does IT security help with business outcomes? And if you are able to have that language and also this language of risk, like how much risk taking, how much, you know, what's your risk appetite as a board and what do you want to protect in terms of business processes and data? If you can have that conversation, then the next phase is usually, okay, let's double click and have a conversation about the technology approach for it. But it's not so much... You don't come into the board you know, unless you have a very technical board and say, hey, we're going to deploy zero trust. I need your approval. You know, you first come in and explain the business problem you want to solve, which use cases, the outcomes, and then you, know, you can present this solution. And I, I mean, we've seen the adoption also come you know, top down from, from board and C-level and, and the X-codes in companies because they understand that this level of flexibility and that this risk language works for them because it's the same business language they use for also decision-making.
0: Such a fundamental shift in security can only work though if everyone in the business adopts it. That means good design, implementation and communications.
2: A lot of the problems that you see with people, uh, you know, working around security, it's, you know, it's just been designed in a way that, where the burden is, you know, is not appropriate for the benefit being delivered. You know, it all depends how well it's been implemented, how well it's been done. Um, you can come up with bad implementations of, uh, of anything, but uh, certainly, from a, in, in terms of the, the tenets and the, and the concepts involved, absolutely, it can be implemented in a way which can actually be better for the user. Um, you know, if you're comparing, you know, a, a situation where, you know, you're working from home, you've got a traditional VPN. Um, backhauling all of your traffic into the enterprise network you know, hundreds of or you know, thousands of miles away and then going out onto the internet, you know, you're going to be having a, a much better user experience if your traffic is no longer going through that VPN. You're going to have a much better web browsing experience. Um, so you can design you know, these things uh, or the deployments of these technologies to actually improve things for users to actually provide a, a better user experience.
0: Ian Pratt from HP Personal Systems on how zero trust can make for a better user experience as well as improving security. That ultimately is what justifies the investment. That though is all for this edition of Security Insights. Our next episode will be on Tuesday, March the 9th, when we'll welcome back Amar Singh, founder of the Cyber Management Alliance. At the start of the pandemic, Singh joined us to share his advice on how to secure remote working. He'll be back to discuss the lessons we've learned since and how to prepare for more long-lasting changes to the way we do business. I do hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk and, of course, on iTunes and Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.